from 3 to 5 with Iron Iron, Nadine, and Jada Black, G-Flex. You don't know, so we take up the world, the business. Keep it vibe rolling, I see it. Enough respect, we love the all of you. Next week, same place, same time, yeah? We got to do it more for you and more often, you know see it? And the more like how the Montreal artists, them come in and just give you the vibe, you know see it? I man, love that, you know see it? It's all about this weekend over the Clash, 45 Clash. No long talking. DJ Kush alongside the big bad dude of the war. Big bad war. Worm, I don't want to open another worm. I come out of the wall. I come out of the wall. I send them to the classroom. See the worm. I come out of the wall. You see it? You see it? Left it with this. King Shamrock. Sam Palo. Go and become a brother. I'm falling in love with the treble and the BS. I'm falling in love. Redeem section, put them to yes. Well, I'm falling in love with the music, rubber dub. And I'm falling in love like the music. That's the man vice, real vibe, King Shabrak. Hey. This is not Bojo, this is King Shabrak, yeah. That's why we wicked and rhyme, Prison Radio Show, a part of CQT's Off the Hour. Prison Radio has been on the air for more than eight years. Prison Radio seeks to confront the invisibility of prisons and prisoner struggle by focusing on the roots of incarceration, policing, and criminalization, and by challenging our ideas about what prisons are and the people inside our jails. Prison Radio is dedicated to programming that is directly collaborative with people who are currently incarcerated. This is in the interest of forging stronger ties between incarcerated and non-incarcerated people, ensuring that prisoners have direct control over their representation 
and that our understandings of prisons be informed by those who live inside their walls. We invite anyone who is interested in sharing past archives or collaborating on programming to contact us. You can email news at ckut.ca or prison at ckut.ca. Or you can call us at 514-448-4041, extension 6788. You're listening to CKUT Montreal Community Campus Radio, located on 90.3 FM on the dial and www.ckut.ca online. Good afternoon. You are listening to the Prison Radio Show. My name is Candice, and I'm your host for today's show. Today on the radio show, uh, we will be airing audio from Democracy Now! about, about Herman Bell's parole decisions. Herman Bell is a former Black Panther who has been in prison since the early 1970s. We will also be airing audio in honor of the 25th anniversary of the Lucasville Uprising. For those who are unfamiliar, the Lucasville Uprising happened in the Southern Ontario, sorry, Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in 1993. Participants in the uprising ended up on death row and uh, faced life sentences. So we will be airing an interview from the Final Straw Radio with participant Imam Siddiqui Abdullah Hassan about the uprising, the Lucasville uprising. But first, as we often do here on the Prison Radio Show, we're going to start the show off with some news. Uh, first off, in February, so just a couple months ago, the Florida Department of Corrections announced its intention to start a new visitation schedule that could leave a mere fraction of options available to prisoners and their families. Currently, visitation is allowed every weekend, 9 to 3, plus holidays, so it averages about 50 hours of possible visitation a month. The proposed cuts would provide for only half of these days, so alternating weekends and as little as two hours per visit, so this means only 10 hours per month of visitation hours, a significant decrease. It's been widely studied and reported that frequent visitation is a driving force for prisoner rehabilitation in the cases where that's needed, and visitation drastically improves the rate of successful re-entry back into society. It's proven to reduce recidivism rates. That's where um, people uh, end up back in prison within three years. And so despite that, the Florida Department of Corrections says that cuts are needed in an effort to reduce contraband. But these cuts come on the heels of the recent Operation Push Prisoners' Strike that was launched in January of this year on Martin Luther King Day, where cell phones were used to communicate with the outside world about the protests and repression without fear of retaliation from violent guards. And so while the Florida administration may never admit the growing protests inside as a reason for the cuts, there is ample evidence in recent months that points to efforts at generally reducing outside contact both by shaking down whole units to retrieve hundreds of contraband cell phones and by repeated excuses for cancelling visitation, as well as enforcing unnecessary strip searches and arbitrary rules on visitors to discourage their attendance. So Florida is already one of the worst states for prison visitation. 
These cuts in Florida are coming in tandem with a new private contract to provide video calling service at $3 for 15 minutes. The Florida Department of Corrections says the cuts and the contracts are not related, but those who spoke at the hearing, some who had decades of dealing with the Florida Department of Corrections, repeatedly indicated no reason to trust the agency. All signs point to lobbying by the now-merged multi-million dollar contractors, JP and Securus, as another major factor in these decisions. The cuts are supposed to go into effect, or they were supposed to go into effect, uh, on a trial basis as of April 7th, but that has been delayed thanks to public opposition, though they could still take effect in the coming months if the Department of Corrections chooses to ignore public input. Uh, it's not too late for you to submit written comments concerning the visitation policy change, and you can submit these comments in writing um, before tomorrow if you write to the Florida Department of Corrections. Long-term Longtime anarchist prisoner, radio commentator, and author Sean Swain has launched a hunger strike and calls of support are needed. Friends of Sean says, We have not heard from Sean in a week and have received word via a proxy that he is six days into a hunger strike. We have also heard that Sean is facing repression of various kinds, such as false conduct reports, unnecessary unexplained cell changes, and limitation of his communications. Although as of yet these issues are unconfirmed, we would like to request that supporters take a moment to call Warren Correctional and inquire about Sean's status and raise concerns about how he's being treated right now. The phone number for Warren Correctional Institution is 513-932-3388. Again, it's 513-932-3388. You can press 7 to be connected to the warden's office to express your concern about the treatment of Sean Swain, who's... Uh, Reports we've we've aired here on the prison radio show before. The Globe and Mail is reporting that two thirds of British Columbians who've died of drug overdoses in recent years were at some point in their lives in custody or under community supervision, which highlights the need to improve access to treatment behind bars and connect prisoners with healthcare upon release. So that's one of the findings in a report released on Thursday by a panel struck last fall to examine BC's significant increase in overdose deaths. Four people die of overdoses every day in BC, the report said, and all of these deaths are preventable. So out of the 66% of people who died in, of overdoses in recent years, um, about mm, the vast majority of them died within a year of release from a correctional facility or within two years of release from a correctional facility. Prisoners in BC can request opioid treatment with methadone or suboxone upon admission, but some have reported delayed access or no access at all. The CBC is reporting on the Fien's Commission and uh, John Clarence Kawapit recently testified about uh, his experiences in a Quebec prison and he says that he was treated like an animal in prison. So in a testimony to the Fien's Commission, John Clarence Kawapit described being put in a hole for six days while in prison because he was considered a suicide risk. 
He said that he's been treated like an animal by the Quebec judicial system. Things are getting worse for Indigenous prisoners. He is from the Cree community of Wapmagoo-Stewi in northern Quebec, and he is one of four Indigenous prisoners who testified on Monday before the Viennes Commission, a provincial inquiry into relations between Indigenous peoples and certain public services in Quebec. He told the inquiry that Indigenous inmates need more respect, particularly from inexperienced guards, as well as access to traditional food and medicines. He told the commission uh, also about a healing journey he went on in the winter of 2016. He walked roughly 1,000 kilometers to over a dozen communities between his home in Wapmagustui and Ivujivik, which is Nunavik's most northern village. He said the walk was part of his efforts to heal from childhood sexual abuse at the hands of his father, which began at the age of five and has led to a lifetime of substance abuse and anger. He says that he is currently serving a 16-month sentence at a detention center in Amos, Quebec, and would like to continue his healing there. But he has been denied access to traditional medicines, such as an eagle feather and sweet grass. He told the commission that in previous prison stays, he was allowed to smudge himself in his cell, Um, But then when he was released from one prison stay in 2014, those sacred items were never returned to him. So the commission began its work uh, a couple of years ago. Um, It was born out of the um, allegations of mistreatment made by many Indigenous women against police officers in Val d'Or. So that was a testimony uh, that was... uh, delivered this week, um, and that report was made by the CBC. You are still listening to the Prison Radio Show here on CQT 90.3 FM. Uh, It's almost quarter after five. We are next going to hear um, some from Democracy Now! Uh, One of the reports earlier this week about Herman Bell. So in the clip, we are going to hear from uh, Bob Boyle, who is Herman Bell's lawyer. Amy Goodman also speaks with Jose Saldana, who did time with Herman, and tells a story about the influence Herman had on him while they were incarcerated together. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. As we continue our look at the suspended release of a 70-year-old prisoner who has been granted parole in New York after 45 years in prison, Herman Bell was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for killing of two New York City police officers in 1971, Joseph Piagentini and Waverly Jones. At the time, Bell was a member of the Black Liberation Army, a former Black Panther. Since then, he's mentored thousands of young men while behind bars and kept a clean disciplinary record, even after guards brutally attacked him in September. Uh, State-mandated tests show he would pose the lowest possible risk if he was allowed to re-enter society. In March, the New York Parole Board granted Bell parole, noting he had expressed remorse and was likely to lead a law-abiding life. State law requires commissioners to consider such factors, but they've only recently started to comply after a campaign for reform. In its decision, the parole board cited a letter from the namesake son of one of the victims, Waverly Jones, Jr., who wrote that he and some members of his family supported Bell's release, saying, 
The simple answer is it would bring joy and peace, as we have already forgiven Herman Bell publicly. On the other hand, to deny him parole again would cause us pain, as we are reminded of the painful episode each time he appears before the board. That was the letter. Other family members of the slain officers, as well as the police union known as the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, the PBA, have called for the board to reverse its vote, along with New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. Then on Wednesday, a state judge agreed to hear a challenge from the widow of Officer Piagentini, who says the board violated procedure in its decision, a hearing on the petition set for April 13th, a week from today, just days before Bell's earliest originally scheduled release date. For more, we're joined by Herman Bell's lawyer, Bob Boyle. We're continuing the discussion with him, as well as Jose Saldana, who was formerly incarcerated in New York State Prison and was released by the parole board earlier this year, in January, after 38 years inside. New Herman Bell is now an organizer with the group RAP, Release Aging People from Prison, which has been pushing for parole reform. So, Bob Boyle, in part one of this discussion, we asked you about um, uh, this challenge to the parole board after, well, what, Herman Bell served 45 years in jail, saying he can get out. Talk about the information that they had, that they based this on, and the issue of risk, how low-level the risk was, they said, for him to get out. Well, in order to evaluate someone for, par for parole, there are various statutory criteria. Um, and that includes the disciplinary record of the prisoner, his adjustment whether he's been shown remorse for his crime, uh, whether there's a viable release plan. And what, with what was put into the law a few years ago was something called the compass factors, which is a scientifically-based evaluation of whether they posed a risk to the community. And Herman Bell, after being administered those tests, uh, came out to have the lowest risk for recidivism, which I, I would add is typical for elderly prisoners, even those convicted of murder. I believe the statistic is if you're over 50, there is only a 1% chance of recidivism if someone is released. So this applies not only to Herman Bell, but to many, many people in prison, because our prison population is getting older and older. And his, re um, his record in prison, in prison for 45 years, I think there were something like four violations, possibly, in that 45 years, extremely low. Oh, the, his... his uh, disciplinary record was exemplary. And everyone, I would say, within the Department of Corrections and at the parole board have used that term, exemplary. And in fact, he has diffused incidents while inside, which could have led to harm to other prisoners or to guards. And what happened to him, he himself, um, last year? He himself was beaten? He, in September of 2017, while he was at Great Meadow, which is commonly known as Comstock, and one of the most racist and arbitrary institutions in the state prison system, if not the world, um, he was assaulted by a group of about four corrections officers who escorted him to an area of the prison not covered by video cameras and out of view of everyone. They beat him about the head. He lost consciousness. He suffered a concussion. Uh, and, but of course, then was charged with assaulting the officers. 
after an investigation, those charges against him were dismissed, and he was uh, taken out of solitary confinement and ultimately moved to Shuangunk. And were any of the officers uh, disciplined? There's one or two of the officers were actually under suspension right now, and there's, from what I understand, an ongoing investigation. Hmm. Jose Saldana, you've just recently gotten out of prison after 38 years, and you say Herman Bell deeply influenced your life, and you were not yes. alone in that. No. How did you meet him? Well, I was in a facility with Herman, and I was having a difficult time taking responsibility for my crimes. And Herman said, that's not hard. All you have to do is look at the person as a human being. I was convicted of a attempted murder of a New York City police sergeant. And that, that, that statement coming from Herman Bell caused me to really think and reflect, look at him as a human being. And, that, and then that started, that, that did start the process of me looking at him, not just as a human being, a family man, a father, a husband. And, 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 and having discussions with Herman, you know, I, I kind of started developing insight into the harm that my crime did. And if anybody else would have told me that, I probably would have not listened. I would have not taken that to heart. But coming from a man like Herman Bell. And I'm not the only one that feels that way. When he says something, we, we tend to think about it and have further discussions on it. And this is why I say he's influenced so many people, because his words are, are, are so profound to us that they just don't go in one ear and come out the next. Did Herman talk to you about um, the role he would play when he got out of prison, if he got out of prison? Well, like you're well, working with uh, well, release aging you know, it's, people it's, from prison. You know, with decades, he's been a role model, a mentor. He facilitated these therapeutic self-development programs for us for decades. And I, I joined him. You know, a man who has dedicated four decades of his life to this, um, he, I mean, he was such a great, he was such an asset to the imprisoned community. It's hard to believe that he won't be even a greater asset to the community and a benefit to society, at, you know, at large. Bob Boyle, um, the significance of this suit, has a suit like this happened before? Explain what it is and um, who it's against, why Herman Bell's um, release was put on hold yeah. for the moment. Yeah, Mrs. Piagentini, Diane Piagentini, but actually through lawyers retained by the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, brought a lawsuit against the state of New York, against the parole board, seeking to block, have a judge block their order releasing Herman Bell. The, this has been tried before, uh, and particularly in, in two cases where uh, someone who had been convicted of killing a police officer has come up and been granted parole. And in both of those cases, in fact, there may be three of them that I'm familiar with, it was thrown out of court for a number of reasons. When someone who is convicted of killing a police officer appears before the parole board and there's a chance they're going to grant it, 
you have to know that they dot the I's and cross the T's, because the parole board knows that there's going to be a reaction if they grant it. And in so th those other cases, and in the case of Herman Bell, they did just that. They listened to Mrs. Piagentini, who has a right and should have a right to make a statement to the parole board, the brother of Waverly Jones, who opposed release, his sentencing minutes, his entire litigation file, what the parole board described as boxes of material, both supporting and opposing his release. So this, they did everything that they were supposed to Explain do. Explain how unusual two hours is. I, I believe there was a hearing last month of the uh, of uh, in in Albany, and Jose might might know about this, where they said that they the parole board spends an average of twelve minutes per inmate when they are interviewing him or her to get parole. So to spend two hours with a single person, it's a very thorough consideration. And the significance of the mayor, Bill de Blasio, who is known as a person who um, supports reform, has called for the closure of Rikers, for example, um, him coming out against the release of Herman Bell? Well, it's very, it's very disheartening and actually shocking, because he is a man who has espoused the principles of restorative justice, that you don't achieve justice by just locking someone up and throwing away the key, that people change. Yet in the case of Herman Bell, without ever having met Herman Bell or reading any of the material submitted to the parole board, said he should never be paroled and can't be rehabilitated, which also flies in the face of neuroscience, which says people do change. But it was, you know, in my opinion, political pandering. And so, right now, um, what will take place? Well, we go to court on April 13th up in Albany and uh, on a hearing on this, on this injunction that the judge issued, which, by the way, was issued ex parte, which means that the other side just submitted papers. We haven't even gotten a chance to respond yet, and we'll see what the judge will do. I'm confident that the judge, if the judge applies the law correctly, it'll be thrown out. And the date that is set for Herman Bell to be released, if he is? Well, there's no set date. He can't be released before April 17th. That's the rule. But it could be that day or any number of subsequent days. Uh, well, we're going to leave it there. I thank you, Bob Boyle, for joining us. Lawyer for Herman Bell, Jose Saldana, formerly incarcerated in New York State Prison, released by the Parole Board in January after 38 years inside, knew Herman Bell and is now an organizer with the group RAP, Release Aging People from Prison. To see part one of our discussion, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us. That was a clip from Democracy Now! about the situation facing Herman Bell, a former Black Panther who was granted parole by the New York State Parole Board, but is now facing the possibility that his parole will be revoked due to a legal challenge being brought by the Policemen's Benevolent Association in New York State. Herman is also a member of the Certain Days Calendar Collective, and uh, we wanted to share with you the call-out which is uh, which is now out <laughs> for the the upcoming 2019 calendar 
The Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners Calendar Collective is releasing its 18th calendar this coming fall. The theme for 2019 is healthcare or health slash care. Reflecting on the overlapping topics of health care and caring and health care. So they are looking for 12 works of art and 12 short articles to feature in the calendar which hangs in more than 3,000 homes, workplaces, prison cells, community spaces around the world. They encourage contributors to submit both new and existing work, uh, especially submissions from prisoners. So tell tell anyone you know. Spread the word. Um, here is some more information about the theme guidelines where where this idea of health slash care comes from they say that in 1972 the black panther party formally added health care to its 10-point program we want completely free health care for all black and oppressed people we believe that the government must provide free of charge for the people health facilities which will not only treat our illnesses most of most of which have come about as a result of our oppression but which will also develop preventive medical programs to guarantee our future survival. Then, as now, health in all its dimensions, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, environmental, community, remains fundamental to liberation. So you are invited to submit articles that are 500 words max. Uh, Same thing goes for poetry, 500 words max. Uh, Include a suggested title. Um, As for artwork, the calendar is eight and a half by 11, um, but it's tall. So portrait, portrait orientation is preferred. Um, Some pieces can be printed with a border, so smaller pieces are okay. They're interested in a diversity of media, including paintings, drawings, photographs, prints, computer designed graphics, collage, etc. The calendar is printed in color, so color is preferred. Um, You are invited to send in your submissions to the... Certain Days Freedom for Political Prisoners Calendar Collective by May 18th. The email address is info at certaindays.org. There is uh, an extended deadline for prisoners. Prisoner submissions are due June 8th and can be mailed to this address. So it's Certain Days Care of Burning Books, 420 Connecticut Street, Buffalo, New York, one four two one three in the USA. You are still listening to the Prison Radio Show here on CQT ninety point three FM, broadcasting live. Uh, up next, we are going to hear an older interview that uh, the Final Straw did with Imam Sadiqi Abdullah Hassan. He was a participant in the nineteen ninety three Lucasville uprising at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility. In the interview, Hassan talks about his life story, the Lucasville uprising itself, and the aftermath of the uprising. We play this clip to honor the 25th anniversary of the uprising, which started on April 11th, 1993. A quick note on this episode, the audio from our guest, Imam Sadiq Abdullah Hassan, is of poor quality because Hassan is in prison in Ohio. He's being held at Youngstown. You can find out more about his case and about the other members of the Lucasville Five after listening to the show at the website lucasvilleamnesty.org. We're speaking with Imam Sadiq Abdullah Hassan, 
one of the Lucasville Five, four prisoners convicted for the murder of a prison guard and one convicted for the murder of nine prisoner snitches during the 1993 uprising at an Ohio prison. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Mr. Hassan, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Well, let's start from the very beginning. I'm the third of four children born to the same parents. I'm originally from Savannah, Georgia. My mother and father was common law married, but never married as far as in a legal court or anything like that. But common law marriage is accepted in certain states. My father and mother separated when all her children was very young. And like many other African-American children in the United States, uh, I was raised by single parents and didn't have any parental supervision and guidance uh, that would lead me into manhood. When my mother was working at small mineral jobs. My eldest sister, who is only three and a half years older than myself, was doing the best that she could in trying to raise her three siblings. I was first sent away from home at a youth development center in Augusta, Georgia at the age of 12 years old and from getting into a lot of fights and escaping, becoming homesick and wanted to be back home with my, my siblings and my mother. And after going through that for so many months, they transferred me to another YDC in Millersville, Georgia. Eventually, I was released from, from the juvenile detention center and linked back up with my elder brother, who was 18 months older than myself. He was getting into a lot of trouble, and that did not come from our household. Basically, what happened was my brother, he became affiliated, associated with the uh, elder guys in the neighborhood, and he inherited some of their criminal tendency. And by me looking up to my brother for guidance, etc., and following his lead, I end up at a very young age getting into a life of crime. And I end up going to prison at, at the age of 15 in 1978 and was released five years later in 1983. When I got out, I ended up getting locked back up a very short period of time. Uh, Ten years later, I was involved in a Lucasville disturbance. When I came to Ohio, I was locked up for aggravated robbery, which a motor vehicle was taken at gunpoint. I went to trial, was found guilty, and was given a 13 to 25 years sentence. No one was harmed, from my understanding, and what took place in the aggravated robbery. And what was going on with you when the Lucasville uprising took place? I was 10 months left to go into the parole board. I was already eligible to be transferred out of Lucasville, but what happened was they had uh, proven me being transferred to another prison, and the prison that they wanted to transfer me to, I had a separation from another individual, and they did not wish to transfer me to that particular prison. So my transfer was on hold. I was an honor prisoner, received GED diploma, uh, had some college experience under my belt. I was in an apprenticeship program as far as masonry, electrical wiring, plumbing, etc. Can you give some background into the SOCF, otherwise known as Lucasville, to our listeners and about the years and months preceding the riot and what changes were occurring? First and foremost, when it comes to the convict body and for most uh, prison staff and correction officers, they all refer to the prison as Lucasville. However, the actual name of the prison is the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. That opened in the fall of 1972. So to begin with, uh, it's in the city, Lucasville, so that's why a lot of prisoners and others refer to it as Lucasville. Lucasville is a small Appalachian and conservative city 80 miles directly south of Columbus. 
If we come from Kentucky, if you cross the Ohio River, Lucasville sit just across the Ohio River. Another thing with regards to Lucasville, it has over 1,600 sales, but at any given time, all those cells are not actually full because if something happened with the plumbing, the sink, or the toilet, we're not supposed to keep a prison in a cell where the water and toilet does not work. So its design capacity is over 1,600. To be exact, uh, 1,638 cells. But at the time of the Lucasville uprising, it was 146% of its capacity. So we can see from that it was overcrowded. In fact, the inmate to correctional officer ratio was 8.8 to 1, and the national average was only uh, 5.1 to 1. In the whole history from the time Lucasville was in existence up to this current date, the black prison population has always exceeded 60%. The minority population with regards to his staff and his correctional officer have never exceeded 10%. And usually what I try to explain to people, basically what you had was predominantly a black prisoner population and a predominantly white population. And these whites, they were former farmers, and the blacks come from the inner cities of various different cities throughout the state of Ohio, Cleveland, Columbus, Youngstown, Toledo, Akron, Ohio, and various other different places. And they have never had any experience of actually dealing with the blacks as a whole. So that within itself was basically a recipe for disaster. What sort of affiliations did you see between the majority white prison guards from a rural white community with the white prisoners as opposed to the majority black prisoners under their supervision? The white guards had an affinity toward white prisoners. And if it came down to a black and white situation where you had prisoners had some kind of confrontation, yes, then the white guards would turn a blind eye to the white prisoners doing something to the black prisoner. Or in some cases, they would even bring them weapons in. Or if they didn't bring the weapons in, prisoners, white prisoners would make weapons in uh, the various different shops. And the guard would just turn their head and allow them to bring the weapons up to the, the residential area where we live at and never say anything about it. But they know what the weapons was going to be used for because any time there was a confrontation in the prison, the prison guard was always brought up to speed by their superior as to what was happening and to keep their eyes open for any trouble because they was always aware of what was going on in that environment. In my religion, Islam teaches us that there's nothing wrong with having a natural affinity towards your own ethnic group as opposed to someone else, but not to the extent where it calls you to commit some form of injustice towards someone else just because of the pigmentation of their skin. The system has always been structured, whether you be in prison or even out in society, have always been structured along the lines of trying to keep the races divided and at odds with each other. Because again, as long as we're fighting and bickering among ourselves, then we cannot see who our true enemy is, which is the government within itself. And as you always try to tell people, is that the same government that is oppressing us behind enemy lines it is the same government that oppressing you out there in society. There's not two governments, it's one government. We should always try to become unified and work together, show collective work and responsibility and try to bring about revolutionary changes. That was basically uh, the background in Lucasville. The white guards, they hated blacks. They treated us as if we was dogs. And when I say us, I'm speaking about the prison population as a whole. Me as an individual, uh, I'm a strong-minded person, and all of them knew me, and I'm just not going to tolerate you treating me as a black dog. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. 
The Correctional Institution Inspection Committee, it is a watchdog prison group in the state of Ohio that oversees and monitors what goes on in prison and try to offer advice to the Ohio General Assembly and to the prison director to try to bring about change and try to keep harmony within the system and trying to have it to work for the benefit of both prisoners as well as the staff members and correction officers. Prior to the Lucasville disturbance, prisoners were sending in so many different complaints that the Correctional Institution Inspection Committee, the CIIC, came in, did a thorough investigation, and they seen how guards was killing black prisoners over very trivial things as far as spitting on a staff member, uh, whistling at a staff member, using profanity at a staff member or a nurse, taking out their private part and being disrespectful. Yes, I agree that it's disrespectful, but at the same time, they're taught in the academy that these things are going to happen. You're in an all-male environment that what you should do is write the person a conduct report. But staff member was not doing that. They was taking the matter in their own hand. They was becoming the judge and jury. They were actually going to prisoner cells after handcuffing them and shackling them, beat them severely. In some cases, they have killed various different prisoners. So the CIIC, they have reported this, and certain staff members, if I remember the story correctly, was actually indicted but nevertheless, they received no time as a result of killing various different prisoners. When it comes to prisoner death, stabbings, rape, assaults, selling drugs, and other violence, that was the norm. That was not the exception. It was a vicious cycle that the prison population as a whole had to go through. And at one point in Lucasville, they was averaging about five to seven deaths per year. And in many instances, it was white prisoners killing black. Occasionally, you had black-on-black -black crime going on as well. And not only was black prisoners was the recipient of this violence, staff members as well, because not only did the uh, prison guards and staff didn't like black prisoners, they also mistreated their own colleagues or their own coworkers. In some instances, the coworkers were shunned, their tires were spliced. The white staff member, they made it unambiguously clear that they hated blacks. What happened was... Central Office in Columbus, after getting the report from the CIIC and trying to bring about some changes in the way the structure of the prison was going on, they start moving some older prisoners out, and you had some unrowly, ruly prisoners that was at other prisons throughout the state of Ohio. They brought them into Lucasville, which is a maximum security prison. And these prisoners, they were from the inner city. They was not going to tolerate this racial hostility that was going on. Hassan, can you describe how the Lucasville uprising began? When the rebellion initially happened, it was only intended to be a peaceful disturbance to try to bring to the attention to central office what the prison official was trying to get the Muslims and other prison, prisoners in the population to do, and that was trying to force us to take a TB shot. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. When the staff members was being attacked, and they left their post, and correction officers left each other. They weren't loyal comrades. Prisoners took advantage of the situation and turned what was supposed to have been a peaceful protest into a full-scale rebellion. And in their own words, I can't quote the exact words, but to paraphrase what the black prisoners were saying, yes, we're going to pay these white motherfuckers back for what they don't give to us. You know, So they was going through a long train of abuses. It was a powder keg ready to explode, and you had blood flowing throughout the corridors, and there was pandemonium breaking loose throughout the prisons. 
Can you talk about the TB test and what you and some of the other members of the Muslim leadership at SOCF Lucasville had tried to communicate with the warden? What actually happened was we received notice that the TB test was, was going to be to administer to the entire prison population. And we had already heard from some of our brother in Mansfield Correctional Institution about what the prison officials had tried to do to them, tried to administer the TB test to them. And they was able to talk to the prison officials, level head, prevail, and there was not uh, an uprising or rebellion that had happened in that particular uh, institution. So we tried to do the same thing at uh, Lucasville. We refused the test, and then the warden called myself. It was supposed to be been four other representatives within the Muslim community, but two of them did not show up. Only three of us showed up. And when we got there, Warden Tate, also known as King Arthur, his name is Arthur Tate Jr., but because of the way he tried to rule the prison with the armed fist, most prisoners refer to him as King Arthur, he called us in the meeting, and he basically said that he had received words from his staff that there was 158 prisoners that was refusing to take the TB test, and out of this particular group, uh, the majority of them was Muslim, and that's why he called us here to explain what he's going to do with regards to this matter. He told us that we was not in a position to dictate to him how his prison would be run. If he allowed us to refuse the test, then other groups, they would try to challenge his authority, and we tried to explain to him that that is not the case. We have a legitimate First Amendment right issue that we are bringing to his attention, so it's not like other groups. We are recognized as a certified legitimate group. He did not wish to hear that. He told us that the test would be administered, and it was going to be his way or no way, so... The meeting didn't last that long because we told him, well, we threw with this meeting because it's not going anyway. So we left, and I talked to the other two Muslim brothers as we were going back to our living quarters, and they told me, well, they didn't know whether he was posturing, trying to project this man image in front of his staff members, but they told me to sit down and write him uh, what we call a kite. What is a kite? A kite is a piece of paper where you write the staff member and you'd be as brief as possible, your issues and concerns, you address it in the kite, and then they will get back with you. So after getting back to my living quarters, I decided to sit down and write a brief kite to Mr. Tate, asking him to reconsider his position and hope that he would accommodate us in our request. Because of time limitations for the episode, we couldn't include the audio of the kite here, but there will be a link of the audio of Hassan reading that kite and Arthur Tate's response on RadioForAll.net once the show is up there. The text is also present in the Stoughtonland book on Lucasville. Again, like I was explaining about the correction officers, you know, they're taught in the academy, <clears throat> they're taught professionally, that prisoners does something, you're supposed to write a person up for a conduct report. But the thing with regards to prison officials, whether it be staff members or correction officers, it's like the same thing with polices. They want to take the law in their own hand. They act as if, as if they're above the law. Now, I've been asked over the years, well, why didn't you guys just take the TB test? Uh, when y'all come to prison, you lose your rights. And it sounds rational from the way they're trying to present it. But that is not true. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. There's a 1987 case that came out of the U.S. Supreme Court, and we know the U.S. Supreme Court governs all courts throughout the United States. And the case is called Turner versus Safley. That's T-U-R-N-E-R versus Safley. S 
A-F-L-E-Y. And again, it's a 1987 case, so if you or any of your listening audience wish to review the case, they can. But in brief, it says that just because a person comes to prison and the doors and gates are closed behind him or her, he or she does not forfeit their constitutional right, their First Amendment right. Yes, prisoners are not afforded the same rights as people out in society. But before you try to deny a prisoner certain constitutional rights, there are certain factors must be considered. For example, I think the court lists four of them, and if I don't narrate them in the sequence that they actually did, uh, excuse me, but one, the court basically was saying, there must be a valid and rational connection between the prison regulation and the legitimate government interest to put forth to justify it. So in other words, if the government is putting forth a rational, legitimate issue, a particular issue, then it can, they have to justify it. I agree that when you're in a confined area, like in prison, packed up like sardines, a disease uh, and outbreaks happen in prison. And because there was a problem, not in Ohio, but in other prisons throughout the United States with regard to the TB test, the prison official had a legitimate interest here in making sure that they prisoners be administered the TB test. So uh, we agree with that. The court agrees with that. One of the second factors that must be considered is the relevance and determine the reasonableness of a prison restriction. So again, we accept that as being legit. The a third issue that the court had to say is what type of impact that this would have on the guards and the uh, prisoner population, or what type of allocation this would cause on the uh, prison official. And the last issue, and I would tie it all in together, and the last issue becomes if there's an alternative method to still justify the means. So since there was sputum specimen, they could have provided us with a chest x-ray. They could have also quarantined us, removed us from the general population, and put us in one of the other blocks, all those who refused to take the test. They could have quarantined us, and after a certain period of time, they could have seen that we was not infected by the TB virus. So since there was an alternative method, and it would have not caused any type of severe allocation on the state, we saying our position is that the state should accommodate us, but when you're dealing with a hard-nosed, hard-line warden who flexing his muscles and grandstanding and trying to establish a reputation for himself, you know, level head did not prevail. He struck a match. Our position was we're going to have a peaceful protest and we were going to bring it to the attention of central office and hope that they would intervene in the matter and order warden Arthur Tate to allow us to take one of the alternative tests that was available for us to take. And the last point I want to make on this here so people can get a clear understanding. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. In Islam, there's a, a principle that's called the lesser of the two evils. That is, when you're faced with two evils and there's no third way out, as a Muslim, you have to take the lesser of the two evils. One of the evil is this, the Mantos tuberculin skin test contains phenol, and phenol is an alcoholic substance. It is unlawful for Muslims to consume alcohol, to use alcohol, to sell alcohol, to transport alcohol, to be involved with it in any shape, form, or fashion. So one of the evil is that we could have took the test. The second evil was that if we refused to take the test, the prison officials would use physical force, literally, to compel us to take the test 
But there was a third way out. The third way out was the state should have adhered to what the U.S. Supreme Court has said and allow us to take an alternative test. There would have never been a rebellion, and people would have not sensibly lost their lives and got hurt over some warden being ego-tripping. What did the protests look like? What did it look like? You said peaceful protests. Did y'all lock yourselves in your cells, or...? Oh, no, no. Peaceful protests, I mean... When the discussion came up, that was one uh, thought, but people, because based on the history of guards killing prisoners and basically doing whatever they want, the only way that they felt they could do that had to have some, I guess you could say, bargaining chips. And the only bargaining chips that was available, because they cared nothing about the prison itself, you can build another prison or you can uh, fix it up. So the best bargaining chip that was available was to take guards hostages and hold them sort of prison officials would not storm the compound and essentially kill a whole lot of prisoners. And we sure it would have been black prisoners that would have been killed in the process. So that was the intent. Take the crowd hostage, feed them, get central office attention, and try to bring about a peaceful resolution to this stalemate that we found ourselves in with King Arthur. But that didn't happen. And once that didn't happen, then you have various groups, the Muslims, the Aaron Brotherhood, the Black Gangster Disciples, and one or two other groups that they came together and tried to establish a system whereas people property were not being destroyed, people were not being assaulted, people were not be taking uh, hostility and old vengeance out on each other, people were not going around raping each other, and anyone that caught raping each other, which did happen during the initial part of disturbance, you had a prisoner uh, by the name of Bruce Harris, he raped a, a white guy, and as a result, he was taken and he was beaten at two different locations, one in the corridors and one in the gym. And the Muslims took, one Muslim took, took, partook in that, an Aaron Brotherhood, and a black gangster disciple. And the purpose for that is because they didn't want to do it in private where nobody would see it. They wanted to send a message to anyone else. If you caught trying to rape someone or raping someone or breaking in people, or trying to steal from other people, you're going to be disciplined as a result of that. So it was used as a scared straight tactic. So you talk about those three organizations, the Sunni Muslim community, the Aryan Brotherhood, and the Black Gangster Disciples. They really went on to define who the Lucasville Five would be. Can you describe the other members of the Five and give us some background on them? Okay. I'm one of the Lucasville Five. Another one of the Lucasville Five is Namir Abdul-Mateen, formerly known as James Ware. He's also a Sunni Muslim and affiliated with the same uh, Muslim group as myself. He's 57 years old. He's very loving, kind, laughable, playful, have one of the beautiful spirit that I've ever met. Uh, he's very charitable, but he's also a little slow, mentally speaking. Other than that, he's an all-around good individual. As a quick note to listeners, Namir has an IQ of 69 and has learning difficulties that his attorneys have argued put him on the borderline of being mentally disabled. So you have George W. State, also known to most of us as Big George. He's a white gentleman. Uh, he's no longer at Ohio State Penitentiary where we're at, the Supermax, because George has some paranoia, schizophrenia disposition. And certain prisoners are not allowed to be held here, people with uh, mental problems. His mental problem is not the extent of your average mental problem out in society or in prison, but nevertheless, he could not be housed here. George is a kind, loving-hearted uh, prisoner. He's a down-to-earth, 
He's a no-nonsense type person. He believes in giving people their respect, regardless of race, color, creed. Uh, he's just an all-around uh, good individual. He used to be affiliated at the, t at the time of the SOCF uprising. He was affiliated with the Aryan Brotherhood. For 14 or 15 years now, George has no longer has any affiliation with that particular uh, organization. Uh, and he's housed where most of the death row prisoners are housed in Ohio. That's at the Chittacopia Correctional Institution. Next, you have Jason Robb. He's also white. Jason's family comes from the West Coast. He caught his case in Dayton, Ohio. I met Jason decades ago when I was down at Mansfield Correctional Institution. Uh, he was a small, young, white guy, and he became affiliated with the Aaron Brotherhood. You know, some young guys uh, became affiliated with that, white guys anyway, as a way to save their manhood or sometimes to prevent from being jumped on, property being stolen. It was a sense of family, a sense of brotherhood to some of them. And Rob remained affiliated with the Aaron Brotherhood to this day. And to the best of my knowledge and belief, Rob would die being in Aaron Brotherhood. I mean, that is his belief. Uh, myself, uh, and the other members of the Lucasville uh, Five, we all get along with uh, Rob. And the last one is Bomani Shakur, also known as Keith Lamar. Keith Lamar is African-American. He has no affiliation. He's uh, religiously inclined. He enjoys studying. He enjoys writing. In fact, he wrote one book called Condemned. And he's now writing uh, another book about his life, his upbringing. So it would either be an autobiography or he would make it a biography. And that's hoped to be released early next year because he only got perhaps two more chapters to write. And that will become available to the uh, uh, public. So That was Imam Siddiqui Abdullah Hassan speaking with bursts from the Final Straw Radio. We are at the interview to acknowledge the 25th anniversary of the Lucasville Uprising. For more information about the uprising and the struggles Hassan has faced since uh, the recording of that interview, you can visit lucasvilleamnesty.org. There's also uh, right now uh, a call out for actions and solidarity with the Lucasville participants that came to us uh, from Central Ohio Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, Lucasville Embassy, and the Free Ohio Movement. So they say prisoner survivors of this rebellion have spent these 25 years acting as beacons of resistance despite suffering in solitary confinement and on death row. Their persistent and stiff resistance has reached concessions from the state of Ohio, improved conditions for all prisoners at the Supermax, and inspired and participated in the burgeoning nationwide prisoner resistance movement. From another cell block occupation in 1997 to lawsuits against the Supermax to successful hunger strikes um, over the course of the past decade to death sentence resistance uh, to Imam Siddiqui Abdullah Hassan's participation and advocacy for the nationwide strike and prisoner protests that took place on September 9th, 2016. These prisoners have been at the heart of the burgeoning prisoner resistance movement. And that about concludes our program here, um, the prison radio show. You will want to check out past episodes of the prison radio show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prison Radio Show. We air uh, twice a month on SKUT. We're on the air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday at 11 a.m. So our next 
Prison Radio Show will air on Friday, April 27th at 11 a.m. And we will most likely hear from a family member whose, um, whose brother was murdered by prison guards, um, Correctional Central Correctional East in Lindsay, Ontario. So um, Suleiman was murdered by prison guards, and we will likely hear from his brother about uh, the Justice for Soli campaign. Um, if you have any questions on anything that you've heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the program, you can contact us, prison at cqt.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can leave a message on our listener comment line, 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you are in prison,